beloved Edward Payson, uh, the great 19th century preacher from Portland, Maine, once said, in fact, he began his sermon saying, a minister who would be faithful must frequently compare his preaching with the scriptures and inquire not only whether he preaches the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but also whether he gives to each particular doctrine just that place in his sermons that its importance deserves and that is given to it in the word of God. And he then goes on to confess that the doctrine of hell had not filled such a place in his sermons, which it does in the Bible and in the teachings especially of Christ, who frequently spoke of this doctrine. And so he said, I I therefore feel bound in duty to call your attention to this subject as painful as it may be. It's a subject that we too do well to give our attention to not infrequently. J.C. Ryle said that preaching is sadly defective, which dwells exclusively on the mercies of God and joys of heaven, and yet never sets forth the terrors of the Lord and the miseries of hell. It may be popular, but it is not scriptural. It may amuse and gratify, but will not save. He says, give me the preaching that keeps nothing back which God has revealed. You may call it stern and harsh. You may say that to frighten people is not the way to do them good, but you forget that one of the main objects of the gospel is to persuade men to flee from the wrath to come. And it is vain to expect them to flee unless they're afraid. He says there is a place in our preaching for the doctrine of hell. It's also one of the reasons why, why it's a good practice to go through the, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith in these 52 Lord's Days so that we might be reminded of those things that we would otherwise prefer to avoid. So I want you to look with me this afternoon at um, three aspects of the doctrine of hell from the passages that we just read in them. Uh, we see that hell is a place of agonizing pain. We see that hell is a place of unending duration, and that hell is a place of just retribution. Agonizing pain of unending duration has God's just judgment or just retribution for sin. Those are the, the three things that we see this afternoon about hell. Um, look with me first, and it's agonizing pain. Again, I know this is not something that's, that's comfortable. It's not something that we like to do. But again, um, God's word directs us to consider it. Um, each of the three passages that we just read direct us to consider it. The, the wisdom of, of our confessions and our catechism direct us to consider it. So as we think about this agonizing pain, really, uh, we see it in, in three ways. We see in the, the passages that we, we just read, first of all, just this, this idea of pain in general, each of those three passages. Um, we also see in each of these passages the pain of being separated from God in his mercy. And then we also see the pain of the presence of the wrath of God. And so first, just this idea of pain in general. Um, you see it. In Isaiah 66, in that language there of the worm never dying and of the fire uh, never being quenched, as it speaks of, of the corpses there um, outside the city, is this eternal suffering and pain. 
That same language then repeated in Mark chapter 9, three times, where it then adds that the judgment of hell is actually worse than having a great millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. Or is worse than having your, your hand and your foot cut off and your eye plucked out. This is agonizing pain that Christ speaks of. It's what John speaks of in that great vision that he saw in Revelation 20, where it says that they are tormented day and night. There's this imagery of fire. Or we could have read in, in Revelation 14, where it says that they will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Or Matthew 8 and and Matthew 25, where Christ speaks on numerous occasions of weeping and gnashing of teeth, pain that drives you almost to insanity, to weeping. Now, one pastor said, commenting on those verses, if all of the tears shed on earth ever since Eden could be gathered together, they would not begin to compare with the tears of one individual in hell. You will weep far more than all the world has ever known. You'll weep forever. This is the pain, the agonizing pain of hell, which in each of these passages we we, um, also see uh, this pain of being separated from God. And first of all, in Isaiah, you, you see that in contrast to the joyful worship of God's people in, in the new heavens and new, new earth in his presence before him, in contrast to that, it says that those from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation who will, will be gathered to God to worship him, it says that they must go out of the city from the place of his presence to look forth on the bodies of those who have been cast out. If we would have read, um, starting a little bit earlier in Isaiah 66, we would have seen in in verse 18, in verse 20, it speaks of God gathering uh, converts from every nation. Then in verse 24, those corpses outside the city are not gathered before him. They are like those of whom Christ speaks in Matthew 25 when he says, depart from me. Or Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. So we see this this same separation in the Gospels. We read of it in Mark 9, where just as the righteous in Isaiah are before God in his presence, or or the sheep in Matthew 25 are told, come and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. Come into the presence of your Father. But the wicked, the wicked in those passages are, are cast out of God's presence, and they're told to depart. And so in Mark 9, we see this contrast between the life into which the righteous enter, the the kingdom that they inherit, and the wicked who are cast out into hell. There is, again, this idea of of separation, of being separated from the mercy of God. Isaiah 66, being separated from the people of God. Revelation 20. Rather than standing in the place of God and in and, and the presence of his people and of his mercy, it says they will stand before God in judgment and then they will be cast in to the lake of fire. They will be separated from God. That's, that's part of this agonizing pain of hell. To be separated from the God who we were made to enjoy communion with. You remember last week we, we spoke 
in Lord's Day 3 of how we're created in the image of God. And that means that we're created to know, love, and enjoy Him, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him and experience communion with Him forever. That's the purpose for which we're made. But here are these passages. It says they will be separated from the God for whom all of us were created to enjoy communion with. And that in itself um, ought to startle us, but, but perhaps, perhaps some would hear that and, and maybe not find that very troubling. Maybe you would hear that, and, and if you don't love God or don't, don't desire to be with Him, you think, oh, that's it's not so bad. But the Word of God confronts us with the fact that if that is our, our thinking, if we think that it would not be so bad to be separated from God in His mercy, then we are misunderstanding what it means to be separated from Him. For no one lives without God. God gives us every breath that we take. His kindness and common grace so surround us every moment of our existence. He makes the sun rise and the rain fall. Matthew 5, I'm both the just and the unjust. James 1 says every good and perfect gift comes from Him. The beauty of nature, the sweetness of good food, sound of music, the joy of laughter, the thrill of romance, all of these are God's good gifts. Art, literature, music, sport, gifts from God. But in hell, all of it will be taken away. To be separated from God is to be separated from all of his good gifts, to be separated from all of his mercy, to be separated from all of his beauty and all of the good beauty of his creation. There, no flower will bloom, no laughter will be had. It will be agonizing pain. The agony of separation from God and all of His goodness, and all of His mercy. And yet, there is also another sense in which we can rightly say, even though it seems a bit paradoxical, that, that there is a sense in which God will be very much present, and that is in His wrath. We see this in Isaiah 66, that though they are cast out of his presence and out of the presence of the righteous who dwell in the city, in the new heavens and new earth, they are nevertheless objects of the very wrath of God. It speaks just a few verses earlier of God's indignation toward his enemies. It speaks of him coming with fire to render anger with fury, and it speaks of the slain of the Lord being many. Same idea is seen in, in Mark, where the very idea of, of fire is that which elsewhere in the Bible represents God's presence. Remember, we heard in our call to worship that he is a consuming fire, which the book of Revelation likewise makes clear, not only in, in chapter 20, but also in chapter 14, where it is in the presence of the Lamb that the wrath of God is poured out. Beloved, the part of the agonizing pain of hell is that God is present in his wrath. We sang a few minutes ago from Psalm 139, which, which says that we cannot escape from his presence. Even if I descend into hell, you are there. God's presence is everywhere. We confess that he is omnipresent. Uh, Reformed Presbyterian pastor Ted Donnelly says, God, who will be the heaven of one person, will be the hell of another. 
The damned are separated from God's grace, love, and mercy, yet he is close to those in hell because he is present in his anger. We see that in question 10. It says that he is terribly angry. That hell is the place of his angry presence. It is the place, question 11, of punishment of both body and soul. Of agonizing pain both now for the souls of those who are being judged and one day for their resurrected bodies, which will be especially fit for endless torment. Is what we see next as, as we think about hell's unending duration. And there's that word eternal in question 11 where it says, Eternal punishment of body and soul. The Bible makes very clear the unending duration of God's judgment in the language that we read of the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. If you look back at Isaiah 66 and that line about the new heavens and new earth, it says that it will remain or endure as will that the people of God and, and the name of God's people, who it says in verse 22, will remain forever before him. Meaning the final state of those worshipers of God will be permanent and unending. Which is then paralleled in verse 24. The very last verse of this, this great Old Testament book of Isaiah where the corpses of those who have rebelled against God are in a perpetual state of dishonor. It is implied and made clear by the, the perpetual state of honor and glory of the one group. Is then made even clear by the book ending with the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. Normally, fire and, and worms would consume a corpse until there is nothing left, but in the age to come, the devouring worm will not die and the consuming fire will not be quenched, which means, to, to quote one theologian, the bodily degradation of the wicked will never end, but will partake of the same longevity as the new heavens and new earth. The bodily degradation of the wicked will never end, but will partake of the same longevity as the new heavens and new earth. This implies that the resurrected bodies of the wicked will be given new qualities, allowing them to be fit for endless torment. Not consumed by fire or consumed by the worm, but an infinite duration of of torment in body and soul. Christ picks up on in Mark chapter 9. He he quotes from this same passage in Isaiah 66 and and uses that language of the fire not being quenched some five times. Matthew's version of of that same speech of of Christ, he he uses the word everlasting. The idea is that this pain, this agonizing pain of both body and soul is of endless duration. Duration. Revelation 20, tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the Bible's teaching about the eternal punishment of all who have rebelled against God and not observed and obeyed all the things written in the book of the law. Everyone who is in Adam, born in sin and committing sin, who does not look to the mediator who we will meet next week in Lord's Day 5, apart from him, this is their fate agonizing pain of endless duration in body and soul where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, separated from God's mercy and yet paradoxically in the presence 
of his anger. And Christ speaks of this often. He doesn't shy away from the fact that this is the fate of all who rebel against him. It's God's just retribution for their sin. That's the last thing we see. Hell is a place of agonizing pain. It's a place of, of agonizing pain for endless duration. And then lastly, that that is God's just judgment or just retribution for sin. Those, sorry, remember the, the context of, of all of this in Lord's Day 4 is, is asking what, what is the, the, the justice of this holy God require as a result of the rebellion of Lord's Day 3. So the context of all of this is God's just judgment for sin. Lord's Days 2 through 4 speak about the misery, the, the, the sin of mankind in rebellion against God. So that the context of question 4, what does the justice and holiness and righteousness of God require in light of the rebellion that we just considered last week in Lord's Day 3 or of the inability to keep the law and the hatred of God and neighbor that we read of and heard of from Lord's Day 2? The context of all of this is God's just judgment against sin, which again is, is what we read of in each of those passages that we considered. In Isaiah, it is not an arbitrary judgment that the book ends with, but it's those, verse 24, who have transgressed against me, says the Lord, whose corpses will lie outside the city as in abhorrence to all flesh. It's those who have transgressed against me, or the ESV, I think, says rebelled. Those who have rebelled against me. This is that same idea of the willful obedience that we read of in question answer nine. The willful disobedience and rebellion at the instigation of the devil that renders the agonizing pain which God afflicts as just retribution. Question 10 speaks of it as just judgment in accordance with the demands of the law. Question 11 says his justice demands it. Same thing Christ says in Mark chapter 9, where the agonizing pain that is worse than being cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck that is worse than having your your hand and your foot cut off and your eye plucked out, he says that is the, the just recompense for those who would cause one of Christ's little ones to stumble. You see this, if you, you compare this with the passage that we saw, that you see right before it in Mark chapter 9. Mark 9.41, it um, speaks of how the one who gives a cup of cold water to one of Christ's disciples in his name will not lose his reward. And then immediately after that, it goes into the passage that we just read, where there's this, this concept of reward looming over what Christ says, so that, that uh, as we come to verse 42 and speak of the judgment that would come upon one who would cause one of Christ's little ones to stumble, that is their reward for what they have done. The judgment that Christ speaks of is the reward or recompense for the one who sins against Christ's sheep and causes them to stumble. Verse 43, who sins with their hands. Verse 45, who sins with their feet. Verse verse 47, who sins with their eye. So Christ is not just speaking, causing others to sin, but he speaks of the totality of what we do, what what we think, what we view, uh, where we go, what we do. 
and is saying, when you use your members, when you use the, the parts of your body, your hand and your feet and your eyes, not to glorify me, not for the purpose for which I gave them to you, but instead when you use those for willful rebellion against me, the just judgment for that sin is being cast into the fire of hell where the devouring worm does not die and the fire that will burn you will never be quenched. Same thing that we read of in Revelation 20 where the fire and torment are a result, verse 12, of the judgment according to works. That language is repeated several times. It says, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Belgian Confession, Article 37, picks up on that when it says that, that the books will be opened. The wicked will be judged according to the things that they had done with their hands, with their feet, and, and with their eyes, Mark 9, in rebellion against God, for which the torment of Revelation 20, verse 15, is God's just judgment. And that's the point that the catechism is making when it says that sin committed against God's supreme majesty must be punished with the supreme penalty. I believe it was R.C. Sproul who said that sin is cosmic treason because it is rebellion against the God of the universe. It is rebellion against God's supreme majesty. And the catechism is making the point that that's why it deserves the supreme penalty. Because it is sin committed against God's supreme majesty. It is cosmic treason. One pastor illustrated it this way. He, he said, imagine you're, you're walking down the sidewalk, walking down the road, and you, and you see someone up ahead of you sitting on a bench. And as you get closer to them, you notice that they've got a little grasshopper in their hands and they're pulling its legs off. You might respond by thinking that's a little odd. You might respond by moving over to the other side of, of the street. Yeah, you're likely not going to respond by, by confronting them over the life of the grasshopper. And then he says, now imagine you're walking down the street and he's doing the same thing with a, maybe a frog. How would you respond then? It's a, a little bit more disturbing, but, but maybe not enough to intervene. He says, how about if it was a bird? Uh, maybe, maybe you'd at least try to stop him. How, how about if it were a puppy, he says. Maybe you would initiate a, a confrontation. Maybe you'd call the authorities. He says, how about if it were a baby? What would you do if he was, was trying to remove the legs of a child? Hopefully you would, you would scream and you would yell, you would call for help and, and try to stop him. You, you would even risk your own person to try to save that child because justice would require you to intervene on behalf of that baby, and so you would. Then he asks, why the different reaction in each of those different scenarios? If the man is doing the same thing to the grasshopper that he is to the puppy or to the child, why, why is it that your response is different? And the reason is because the one who is sinned against is different. You react differently because the seriousness of the sin is not measured merely by the sin itself, but by the value and worth of the one being sinned against. The more noble and more valuable the person, the more reprehensible the assault. 
pulling the legs off of a grasshopper is one thing. Doing it to a tiny little image bearer of God is another. You see how this relates to what we read in in question 11. You see how this relates to, to, to Mark 9 and Isaiah 66 and Revelation 20. Rebellion against the supreme majesty of God Almighty is serious, not just because of the nature of sin itself, but because the one who is sinned against is supremely almighty. This is the underlying principle of of question 11. Sin committed against God's supreme majesty deserves the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. You may think that the doctrine of hell is is somehow unjust, that, that, that all of this is a little over the top. But God is no grasshopper. Agonizing pain of unending duration would be an overreaction perhaps if he were, but he's not. He is, as we confess from the scriptures and and, and from Belgic Confession, Article 1, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. He is supremely Majestic, of greater worth than a thousand worlds, and therefore to sin against him is an infinitely heinous offense that deserves an infinite punishment. Hell is just retribution. And our hesitations about this doctrine or the hesitations of the world around us about this doctrine reveal our small view of God. We have a diminished view of sin and of the judgment that sin deserves because we have a small view of God. So the catechism instructs us to behold his supreme majesty and having beheld it, to see the judgment that we read of in in Isaiah and Mark and Revelation and to see it as just. That this is what every single person deserves because of their sin. The function of these passages, the function of of Lord's Days 2 through 4 on man's misery is to help us to see this and come to terms with it so that we would be ready for Lord's Day 5, so that we would be ready to meet the one who will stand in our place and absorb God's just judgment for sin. So that we'd be ready to meet this one who is both, both a true and righteous man, but also eternal God, bearing the weight of God's wrath for us on the cross. As we sang before the service, the wrath of God was satisfied, as we confess in question and answer 44, where it speaks of the descent into hell, that Christ, in his unspeakable agony, experienced not only on the cross, but also earlier, delivers me from hellish anguish and torment, because that is what he bore on the cross. Where he absorbs the fires of Psalm 80 that we read and sang of earlier, so that God's face could shine upon us to the Son of Man of his own choosing. The doctrine of eternal punishment in question 10 and in question 11 is to cause us to flee from the wrath to come by running to the one who is not only just but also merciful, question 11, who shows that justice and that mercy at the cross. The place where Psalm 85 says justice and mercy kiss. They come together, the person and work of Christ, 
where he makes provision, where, where God makes provision in his son of one who will bear the judgment that you and I deserve. This is where Lord's Day 4 is leading us. This is where Isaiah 66 is leading us to see the threat of God's judgment and yet also the promise of his grace for those who will come to him. Actually, if you have Isaiah 66 still open before you, right after, right after verse 17 of Isaiah 66 where it says that the wicked and idolaters will be consumed... And then goes on to speak of, of God um, gathering the nations to himself and, and of God setting a sign among them, verse 19. It says, for I know their works and their thoughts, it shall be that I will gather all nations and all tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. It is among them to escape. I will send to the nations. I think Isaiah commentator Alec Mater is right when he says of verse 19 there that that sign which he will set up among them can be nothing else but the cross. It is the message of the cross, the message of the mediator who bears God's just judgment for those who repent of their sins and come to him in faith that that turns Lord's Day 4 not just into bad news, but bad news that serves as the backdrop for the good news. For the best news, for the message of the cross that will be be proclaimed to all those nations of Isaiah chapter 66. Again, J.C. Ryle says, were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all who believe, that we might well shrink back from this awful topic. Were there no precious blood of Christ to be able to cleanse away all sin, then we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. There is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain open for sin. So let us boldly maintain that there is a hell and let us beseech men to flee from it before it's too late. He says, knowing the terrors of the Lord, the worm and the fire, let us persuade men to come. Actually, the same logic of, of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he speaks of the judgment of God that will come and says, therefore, let us persuade men, let us, let us reason with them that they might be reconciled to God. It's actually the same thing we see happening in Isaiah 66 where you see these men declaring the glory of the Lord and holding up a sign among the nations so that those who would otherwise be objects of the judgment of verse 24 might instead know the glory of verse 22 and verse 23, worshiping the Lord forever in his presence in a new heavens and new earth. Where the glory of what he will do for them is all the more highlighted by the knowledge of the judgment of verse 24 of those who are outside the city because they have transgressed and rebelled against him. So you see that the use, the, the function of a doctrine like this is first of all to make us appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. It is, it is uh, given to us so that as believers in Jesus Christ, we might be brought to gratitude as reminded of what we deserve. Or for those who are outside of Christ, it is given to make, to make them come in faith and repentance. 
And then being made grateful for the grace of God against the backdrop of the judgment we deserve. It is, it is functioning to cause all of us to be moved to compassion for the lost and a zeal for holding up the sign of the cross to those who were perishing. Southern Presbyterian Arl Dabney, a couple hundred years ago, said, can we contemplate the exposure of our friends and neighbors... Can we contemplate the exposure of of the nations around us to a fate so terrible and yet feel so little sensibility and make efforts so few and so weak for their deliverance? He's saying the doctrine of hell should motivate us to mission. It should move us to a deep appreciation of what God has done for us in Christ and then an earnest desire to share that good news with others to the praise of his glorious grace. It should move us to pray for the salvation of the nations. It should move us to pray for the salvation of our neighbors. It should move us to compel them to flee from the wrath to come and and come to this God who is not only just but also merciful. If you're here, if you're listening this afternoon and you do not know this gracious God, behold him in his supreme majesty. See your sin for what it is and what you deserve and then see his justice but also his mercy at the cross where Christ became a curse for us and repent and believe. Confess your sins and believe that Christ paid for them on the cross and seek to put to death your sin so that you might glorify and enjoy him forever. Mindful of his mercy as you are aware of the judgment that you and every other person deserves. This doctrine calls us to repent and believe. Calls us to flee from the wrath to come. It it calls us to appreciate all that God has done for us in Christ, all that he's delivered us from. And then to hold that up as a sign to the nations that they might escape the just judgment they deserve and know God's merciful provision of salvation through Christ. That's the use of this doctrine. It is a summons to repent and believe. It is a a call to compassion on the nations. And it is an invitation to a greater view of God in both his supreme majesty and also his supreme mercy that is highlighted for us against the dark backdrop of the awful judgment that our sins deserve. And as it calls us to behold God in his justice and righteousness and yet also in his grace it is mercy it is a summons to worship to respond to this great and awesome god